This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for MakeASkillJack.com, and you can find more writing by me at HittingAJack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at SteveRosePhD.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast, Steve. Welcome. There we go. No more awkward pauses or silences. We still <laughs> figure out our intro. 22 episodes in now. Still trying to figure it out. Still got to figure out which side of the cart the horse goes on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steve is leading the charge again today. He's taking a more active role in this. So soon... Well, in a while, maybe we'll be 50-50 for our, our topics. But today you decided to, to go with something a little less conventional, a little bit harder to find. We, we're not going to have a direct Wikipedia page for this one. So what is it, Steve? Well, today we're talking about the concept of chiplessness. 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 It's not actually a word. To be without chips. To be without chips, yes. So it's not an actual word. It's a concept that is made up. It's actually used in the book, uh, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain by Lisa Barrett. You read that book as well good book i did very good book uh, i mean honestly it was it filled in some of the gaps and updated some of what i learned but i think 80 percent overlapped with my undergrad and so i kind of tuned out a lot of it mm. i did read it though yeah and for someone who's not familiar with psychology or even social construction in sociology it can be kind of like a mind-blowing type of book then it's going to be like, holy shit, like how, how I responded when I read um, Nassim Taleb's Black Swan. Mm-hmm. I had not really studied much philosophy at the time. And you were like, so? <laughs> and you read it. And I was like, oh, my God, what do I know? Skepticism. <laughs> right. Yeah. So highly recommended. It kind of blows your mind in terms of any preconceived notions about what our emotions, what our feelings, what is our mind like and social reality and how it's all constructed and it kind of changes the game a little bit and i guess the concept of chiplessness is used in the book to illustrate a made-up emotion and she makes up this concept to describe something that people can relate to it's the feeling of empty disappointment you get when you're at the bottom of a bag of potato chips and you reach in it's just crumbs you don't there's none left you're sitting there disappointed did the person sitting beside you take the last chips and just leave the bag there for you to be disappointed by when you reach your hand in and it's empty? I think because people will say, well, that's just disappointment. And I mean, we can get into what emotions are in a, a minute. But right. in this particular topic, I think she was talking about like you're eating a bag of chips and you're enjoying yourself and you're reaching in. And you know, you're getting near the end. And then as soon as you reach in, you're not quite satisfied. You still want more chips. But now there are no chips. That specific tinge of disappointment yeah that's very specific gradient yeah 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 it's very granular you mean yes the very granular specific combination of disappointment combined with desire it's not just disappointment it's like a a being let down desiring more kind of craving oriented of disappointment and so there's no word for that in the english language unless you're combining a bunch of different emotion concepts so she says well that's chiplessness and and creates a new emotion kind of more concepts for very specific emotions and what's the benefit of that well it gives you higher emotional granularity which 
is a specific factor in emotional intelligence. So the more granular you are able to describe your emotions, so instead of just saying, I'm happy, I'm mad, you would have like, I feel joyous, I feel serene. So you have very like subtle, elated, subtle nuances in emotional concepts creates emotional intelligence and also a more body awareness and ability to regulate yourself. And so she creates this concept to illustrate how this is done and, and things that we take for granted as just wired into us as human beings. Like, of course, happiness is this and it means you're smiling. These taken for granted notions of what emotions are, she shows that they're all actually socially constructed or psychologically constructed and that uh, they actually do vary by cultures. So that's a big part of the book as well. I wanted to clarify that just because you used granularity a bunch of times and didn't yeah. directly define it. It just means like how fine the detail is, like how closely you can examine something. Like looking at a doctor's office, if you need glasses and you are looking at the board you're supposed to read to see how good you can see. If it's all blur, that's really low granularity. It's not very detailed at all. But if you can make it every single letter and where they split and like all of like the imperfections in the writing, that would be extremely high granularity. So in terms of emotions is allowing to see, like Steve was saying, the different nuances in emotion as opposed to just happy or sad. One of the things I wanted to add to was that people who have extremely low granularity might not even register that they're feeling an emotion. They might just register. I think we've talked about this before a little while ago, but they might just feel it as like a, a stomach ache or something, which always makes me think of, uh, I know you haven't really watched this, but Chidi from The Good Place, he always has a stomach ache whenever he's upset. To me, like the more I've examined that character, the more I'm like, he is really shut off from his emotions. He's a purely logical character. I guess also what she's trying to do is, like you said, she's pointing out that, that all emotions are given to us through our culture. Mm -hmm. And China, I can't remember any particular different or nuanced emotion they had. To me, I always felt, and this is probably just a limit of my language skills, that they have very blunt terms for emotions. They definitely do have more terms than what I know, but what they commonly use and what the ones I actually understood at least was like happy, hate, like, dislike, because I tried, I always wanted to say like, I resent this thing, which isn't quite the same as hate or dislike, but they didn't, right. I couldn't effectively translate what that meant and they couldn't come up with a word they probably have one but uh, i'm just not aware of it maybe right and different different languages have different emotional subtleties and nuances in their language so actually learning new languages could potentially expand your emotion concepts and therefore emotional granularity and therefore emotional intelligence and so this is kind of right in your wheelhouse of before you move on there like how are you connecting emotional intelligence with granularity for those who are less familiar with what emotional intelligence is eq yeah like They've probably heard the term, but they might not know exactly what it means. And you're drawing this direct line between emotional granularity and increased emotional intelligence. So can you explain why you're so certain that there's that connection there? Right. I guess the intelligence piece is more regarding use and how it's put to use. So your emotional intelligence has some level of like you have to be able to understand what emotions you're feeling, but also how you can manage them and direct them in productive ways. It kind of gets into the realm of not just understanding, but actual coping skills. So 
having further emotional granularity in terms of the concepts realm helps you understand what's going on. And so you have a better map of the territory, which you can then be able to translate to more effective, uh, nuanced ways of coping. Because as you said before, if you don't even know you have an emotion going on, you just like, I just have a stomach ache or whatever, and everything's just constantly repressed. You don't have first the understanding and therefore how are you going to then do the next steps of managing or coping in, in productive ways? It's just all kind of very reactive at that point. Right. So if you can't even identify the emotion yourself, then you're definitely not going to be able to see it in someone else. Since you're speaking there, I came up with a metaphor that might succinctly do it. So developing your sense of taste and becoming a better chef. Technically, if you have a bad, maybe you have no taste. Ooh, I like it. You could learn all the technical skills to become a decent chef, but you're going by the book and it'd be very difficult to tweak or to know how good you're doing. But the better your taste sense would be, the more nuances you can taste in what you're making and you can figure out, okay, there's a little too much of this thing from this one ingredient and there's a little too little of that one. Then you can learn from that and improve your skills. So I guess what you're showing is that by understanding that, like your sense of taste for emotion, you can then use that in more malleable and uh, like a tool, I guess, understanding your own emotions to understand others. I really like that metaphor. Yeah. So in developing the very specifics in, you, in your ability to taste, it makes you a better chef. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I was thinking more of like the realm of connoisseur, like a winemaker or something. You, you'd have to be able to pull out the nuances of various wines. <laughs> I actually, the first thing I came to was like a sommelier, but I'm actually highly skeptical of that entire area. It just seems like there's a lot of money and a lot of pomp and pretense. And I'm sure some people have exceptional tastes, but I feel like a lot of it's just people pretending and just a lot of money flowing for people who don't want to seem like they're uncultured. So I'm highly skeptical of that after like studying taste perception and how like the psych around that works. Well, some of them are actually exceptionally good at like naming like certain things, but like they're creating an experience through their own concepts though. Like if you're just given something and said, taste this, what do you taste? People like burning or whatever versus like a connoisseur. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, and as you nose the glass, I see where you're going with this. And this just seems like it's rife with char like the ability to be a charlatan. If you're charismatic enough and you're really good at convincing people, you could just do the exact same thing with complete ignorance of what you're talking about. That's that's my my qualm with this sort of like purely perceptive area, because it's like you could easily convince people like those where they've convinced sommeliers by giving them like this whole pomp in a nice bottle. But it's actually like box wine or something. Do you remember that time I got you with vodka? <laughs> I actually felt bad after it. You poured two of the same vodka and you asked me which one's better. And I, I just had to pick one. Yeah, well, no, you rated them very confidently, I might add. And this is not unique to Steve. It's not that Steve's an idiot. This is actually very, very common. If you do blind taste tests with people, generally they will, especially if they think one is a fancy one and one is just whatever. If they have those presumptions going in, then they will find one is the better and one's the worse. And he did this, which is very common. I actually felt bad in the context because it was in front of your in-laws, not your parents-in-law, but the siblings-in-law. And uh, it just, I felt kind of like a, a dick because <laughs> I knew that's probably what was going to happen. I'd be shocked if you actually noticed that they were the exact same. Just straight vodka, by the way. Whiskey is more your, your area. So perhaps, yes, he's one of those basic bitches all into whiskey. Right. I don't drink much vodka. So I, my taste granularity was quite low in that area. But if I, I guess if you poured a fine bourbon, that would be very different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
But to be fair, you did, if I recall correctly, rate one of them a four and the other one like an eight out of 10. I don't think we use numbers. I think, I think I was just like, this one's better. No, you definitely did. I got you to do that. I know that's for a fact. We should ask your in-laws if they remember, but whatever we can find. You didn't do that, even though I vividly remember it. <laughs> but that's the thing too. Like memory is super flawed too. I think the thing about connoisseur stuff relates to this idea of chiplessness and emotions as constructed by concepts. Because what they're doing is using concepts like you'll notice a hint of oak and bergamot <laughs> and spice. So these are all concepts that we know and understand. We know the bergamot from Earl Grey tea. Honestly, though, like people say these things and. The only time I've ever come close to understanding this was when I did a, for my coffee website last year, I did a uh, double blind taste test with cupping. The method is called cupping for coffee where it's just, there's no skill involved. It's just hot water with coffee grounds. You stir it a bit, you let it sink to the bottom, then you test and you have like a rating system. So having a system was very useful and being able to go back and forth between different cups and like you slurp it from a spoon so it aerates it and gets more like the full sense of it. I had to learn the whole process for that post, but it was more apparent. It's the only time I've ever been like, huh, I can kind of taste something a little more citrusy here, which I guess you could describe as an orangey flavor. But like, honestly, unless you've had this kind of education or really are into tasting, which honestly, it kind of seems odd to me to begin with. But if you are into that, then these kind of walk, I guess, guided walks through these coffees and beers and wines or whiskey or whatever, those will have more meaning. But if you don't, I've had people... It creates an experience. Yeah, but again, you have to have some sort of granularity to do that. That's the idea, though. You would have to, based on even this book, because without the concepts, you don't have that experience. So if you, if you don't know what the, the concept of citrus means, if you've never had that prior experience, then you're, you're not going to find the citrus in the coffee. Because what what is citrus? That much I can agree with. It's almost like it goes to that, that metaphor of if a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? And the answer, according to this book, is no, because sound is an interaction between the tree falling vibrations and the human ear. And therefore, without the human ear, that's so stupid. Honestly, I, I don't agree with that at all. It's only a sound if an ear hears it. That's such an arbitrary distinction to make. I don't agree whatsoever. Sound is the relation, not the, the thing in isolation. Sound waves. This The energy is still there. Yes, the energy is still there. That's different than the sound, though. The energy is there, but the sound isn't there. I feel that's splitting hairs. That's definitely a philosophical argument that I can't get behind. But I, I guess, sure, fine. These people can like illustrate. I'm going back to Somalia's. They can illustrate what might be there. Suppose the audience knows what they're talking about, and suppose the audience doesn't. And it's like fine wine. You're in a tasting. You're with a bunch of other like cultured people. Imagine nobody understands what the hell the Somalia is saying. Somalia is literally making it up and has no idea what they're talking about, but they're very good at pretending that with the pomp. If that was a context, the people who are drinking it might all still pretend and agree and be like, oh my God, this is so great. Oh, you're right. Oh, I do taste bergamot. Exactly. Then that's the power of this. Dramaturgy again. That's dramaturgy. Yes. Dramaturgy means, yes, it's playing the part in a social stage. The set would be the wine tasting. Everyone knows what that is as a concept. The concept of we're doing wine tasting and what it means. And there's this social reality constructed around wine that has this prestige. If you're doing a tasting, it's going to be very delicate and very important. Yes. And if you don't get it, then you must be uncouth, uncultured. Uncultured. Have I ever told you about the gallon gallstone? Uh, remind me. What, I've heard that. Just to preface this, I'm not a big fan of Anne Rand or Ayn Rand, her philosophy or anything. And I've only read one of her books, which is this one. I thought you used to be. I found it. No, I never... <laughs> 
she makes some like somewhat compelling arguments, but they fall apart when you think about them longer and scrutinize them in, in reality. And she herself, I think, died in public housing on welfare. Ooh. She very much did not live up to her own philosophy. And it's one that enables the rich a lot. But back to the point, the book was called uh, The Fountainhead. And in that there's this cabal of artsy people from various areas. One of them gets very successful and then makes this kind of like conclave of other artists from various fields and all of them are basically pumped up by each other every time one of them releases something all the other ones are like touting how profound and amazing it is and the combination in the book this is her kind of like ripping on the arts and basically uh, i don't know i don't know exactly what her point was but this does kind of work out this way sometimes where they made this book called the gallant gallstone and it's a story about a literal gallstone in a body and it's incomprehensible it's basically trash it's drivel and because everyone in this high cultured context is reviewing it and saying just how profound this book is oh my god the things this espouses that nobody really understands or is able to espouse before if the person doesn't understand it they won't acknowledge it because everyone around them is saying how profound it is and the fact that they don't understand it convinces the reader that it must be profound because it's so profound that they can't get it and everyone's saying it's profound so then when somebody asks them what they thought about it, they say oh it's very profound because they assume that their ignorance is evidence of the profundity of this work that's how a lot of academia works yes yeah and that's i guess maybe that's her criticism but that's Something that happens, oh yeah, we have talked about that in the context of the Avery Tower. So it's this weird performative situation where everyone's kind of not wanting to out themselves. It's kind of pluralistic ignorance uh, is another concept that's related to this. But uh, yeah. we can get back on topic if you'd like. I guess we're already on topic, but I'm like kind of deviating. But this is related to the topic because it's the social construction of reality is what it is. And we think of reality as something that's stable and kind of like nature. And it's just this one thing. And we can talk about that when we look at naive realism. We hear social construction. Well, naive realism is another concept we haven't talked about. We make the assumption that things are the way they are in reality, but they're not. That your perception of the world is objective reality. That's naive realism. Yeah. But first, we always we hear the word socially constructed a lot. People say it's a social construct. Can you put a finer point on that? So people who hear it a lot but aren't entirely sure what it means can get a better grasp? Yeah, because the people are like, social construction, this this is just a bunch of postmodern leftist jargon. Yeah, because they don't understand what the, the word means. It's only been in the last five years, I think, the average person has been hearing about social construction yep. in like news venues such as like Fox and the mainstream yeah. and or Ben Shapiro, where this has really gained some traction. But uh, be- long before that, this has been a popular thing in sociology. And there's a, a long multi-decade kind of research and theoretical tradition around it. And it doesn't mean everything is just made up and nothing is real. It's more about how our culture and our language and our ideas about things shape them and make them what they are. And wine is a really perfect example we already talked about. If you want to get down to the just scientific biology, it's just fermented grapes that were put into oak for a certain amount of time or whatever. Yeah. You can really describe it in a very like just biological process oriented way of what it is. As we talked about in Memento Mori with the Stoics. What's that? As we talked about in Memento Mori in episode three, I think it was with the Stoics, how one of their practices was to strip away the importance placed on something by society to look at it for what it literally is. 
Yeah. So social construction doesn't mean like wine doesn't exist. It's all socially constructed. It's fake. Everyone who drinks it is just a placebo. Like it's, there is a biological reality to the world and it doesn't wipe away that reality. Right. I'm just going to give a a much more to the point definition of what a social construct is. It's just an idea that has been created and accepted by people in a society, which we go to a society that doesn't believe in the thing we're talking about. Let's say money. They just have a barter system. They don't have money. I don't think there's any societies like that, but let's suppose there was. And you went there and you tried to use money. It wouldn't have any weight. They wouldn't consider it to be worth anything. It'd just be like this weird paper. And they'd be like, what are you giving me this for? So money is a social construction. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yes. And so it's not to say that it's not real because in our world, we are a very social species. If everyone thinks that you are diseased and have a problem, then even if that's untrue, the belief of it being true will radically change your life, right? It'll have huge impacts on you. So again, that's socially constructed. Yes. But since our lives are very social and a meaning we get is from social context and from others around us, then these things will heavily impact us. Yeah, because the biological reality of money is that it's just some kind of paper product uh, with ink on it. But the social reality of money is that we all agree that it has a certain value that we put on it and therefore it has real implications in in our lives. Yeah, people kill each other for this thing we've literally made up. (laughs) Money doesn't exist. Yeah, like fiat currency, I think it is, which is, I think, like representative. Yeah, it's this government-issued currency that's backed by the government and not by anything that's actually real. Like the US dollar used to be backed by gold. So it's just money that the government says it's worth this much. That by itself has no meaning at all. It's not like that would naturally occur if it wasn't for people existing. Like we had to come up with that idea. That's the last thing I guess I'll say on this this topic because I think it's clear enough. Social construction. Yeah. Yes. So we, we kind of define social construction, but how is it relevant to chiplessness? But because that's a that's a psychological construction. So this concept of social construction, it only exists socially and culturally, but psychologically as well. They're both. I don't think there is a distinction between psychological and social constructions because a social construction is still manifest in our minds because we are engaging with money, which is a, a thought and we have thoughts and feelings about money. But I think the reason we're talking about it with shiplessness is because emotion, you're saying... We're talking about psychological concepts here. Yeah, but it's still... Whatever, fine. But technically, it's a social construct. It's a social construct and a psychological reality. The reason I wanted to bring that up is because you said like emotions are social constructs. Now, we're going to have to address like the more standard emotions that people think are universal. And Paul Ekman, the guy who is, if you ever heard of the show, Lie to Me, he had theories about people who could read micro expressions and be like super lie detectors. This was his theory. That's completely bunk. That's not founded at all in science. Bunkum. Yeah, bunkum. He thought that you could do that, but it turns out that the way they, they pr- proved that emotions were universal was by going to a bunch of different cultures and showing them pictures of faces and saying, which emotion is this? And then very broadly, people would say like an angry face by our definition would be anger for them. However, this was a hugely flawed study because instead of saying fill in the blank, what is this emotion? Instead, they said, pick from this list of like five emotions, what this emotion is. So it's heavily slanted, like even if you guess, but like based on their whatever translation it is and whatever their conception of these things are, it might not conform to any of them. And so even if they guess, it'd be a 20% chance of getting that. But there might be one that is leaning more in the direction that this face looks like and they would choose that. So when asking people to do a blank and say, what is this? Then it just fell part. Like it didn't exaggerate to other cultures. We didn't have any universal emotions anymore. So when they did the study in that non-biased way where they asked, what is this? These hunter-gatherer contexts, they were using very strange things by our standards, which was like not even related to emotional or feeling states as we think of them. They were things like 
related to doing or actions of sorts. Well, it depends on the culture and their language and everything. Yeah. 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 It was all dependent on There's a wide variety. What was useful for them. The whole fact that you had to use translation in this study is also suspect because you're having to yeah. translate it into different concepts and therefore how do you do that yeah. yeah like schadenfreude like we don't really have a single word to translate that and other concepts like we, we we might just be doing like close approximation like for us saying like happy joyous ecstatic elated they could all just be in chinese maybe like kaishin which is like just happy can you define the what how do you say it again schadenfreude schadenfreude is just the enjoyment in seeing someone else's misery because <laughs> we don't have a single word for that so we borrowed from other cultures and languages I mean, that's why English is a bastard tongue. I remember that one being used in the book a, a few times. I didn't pay attention to it too much. But taking enjoyment in someone's misery, yeah, we don't really have too much of a word for that unless you say it as a phrase, not a concept. I guess we could call it vindictive pleasure, maybe, or something along those lines. But it's still not necessarily a concept. It's not one word. Yeah. The other thing that kind of drove the point home that like that illustrates how emotions are social constructs is if you think about a stereotypically angry face, it's like the furrowed brow, like the eyebrows coming down and inward and maybe baring their teeth or opening their mouth and like in a frozen kind of like yell expression. That is only one form of anger. Like it really is contextual when it comes to emotions because that's that's what we conceive as anger. But if your boss is yelling at you, you're not going to scream at him like that. You're probably like you could be seething angry under your skin, but you're trying to control it because in this context, it's not appropriate for you to express your anger. So you will do things that if someone's paying attention could still obviously let them know that you're angry. Like you're shaking, you're sweating, you're really tense, you're not breaking eye contact, <laughs> stuff like that is like a quiet anger, but it's still anger. And the fact that we were just constantly told this is anger, this is anger, this is anger since we were a kid. Anger means rawr. <laughs> but, yeah. Anger means you're explosive and like just throwing stuff and breaking things, but that's only one expression of anger. Yes. Yeah, so our concept of anger is not very nuanced if we think of it in just that those terms. And I've even heard of a study where they recorded people, they made them angry and the people in the recording actually looked more relaxed when they were experiencing anger. And what a strange idea, because we don't usually think of it. We think of that as the opposite. But actually, rage, when they made people get to the point of rage, that's when they they did the whole furrowed brow, showing their teeth, kind of what we think of as anger. But I think, again, that's only when you're dealing in a context, I think, if the person we're observing as being angry is in either... It would be a dynamic of power in the social the situation, I think, where if you're on similar footing with the people around you, then you could probably express similar footing or above. Like you're either their boss or a coworker. But if you're below them, you're probably not going to be able to express it that way because there's just going to be repercussions against you and it's not wise to do so. I think that also matters depending on how <laughs> the context goes. Like in a study, like they're not going to be afraid of being fired. There's no real power position. They can leave whenever they want. So... I think that it's going to be, it'd be difficult to study unless we're using real world context or maybe had some actual possible consequences. Yeah. So concepts are slippery is what we're saying here is that they're not necessarily these solid things that we find in nature. We find here's what anger is. There's, there's the anger gene or the essence that we discover and uncover what it is. But, uh, these things are very slippery culturally, but also not cross-culturally, but uh, within a culture, you have various subcultures and contexts and power relations and, and sorts that, that change everything. And this is almost like a meta conversation for the title of the podcast, which is concepts, because we're talking about concepts. Why are we so interested in concepts? 
you can answer that. You want me to answer that? What? <laughs> Why are we so like you and I are people more generally? Why are we so interested in concepts? I think the same. I think the answer actually, I don't know why I clarified because I think the answer is probably the same for both. It's because it explains the world and allows you, if you understand the world accurately, then you can dominate the world in whatever way you want, or at least more effectively operate within it. We're trying to dominate the world. Well, I guess reach your goals. I guess they used to say that the mark of intelligence is the ability to accurately predict how the world will react so that you can get what you want, basically. I'm not entirely sure that kind of ignores context a lot of the time, but I guess you can use that as like some sort of shorthand that you're accurately able to predict. So I guess that might be why we're so interested, like people and us individually might be interested in concepts. What do you think? The ability to understand reality does rely on having nuanced concepts, which is part of language, be able to think about it, but also to convey it as we're doing right now in hopefully well-spoken, nuanced ways that we're not just like angry, bad, happy, good, don't be angry. You know, we're not, we're not just kind of like cavemen here. Yeah, we're, we're really pulling these things apart and looking at various concepts that explain the world. You're arguing for something that in the past you've said is very boring, like other languages, for example. You used to find that very boring. You probably might still... <laughs> yeah, I still don't want to learn other languages. That doesn't mean... I'm not saying I still want to learn languages. Yet. That's my point, though. Like That's why linguistics can be so interesting, because it allows you to understand different ways of thinking, different philosophies, just the, the very words they use. Like in Chinese, the word for question and problem is the same word. It's interesting how those small differences, because it's part of the operating system of the mind for that culture, it will kind of color the way they think. And yeah, and like I could say a fair bit about linguistics. I was watching a video about this guy who studied Japanese for, I think it was like five years in America. And he got so good at Japanese, both in the way they speak, the phrasing, the timing of the reactions that Japanese people thought he was actually a native Japanese speaker. He'd only lived in Japan for six months, I think at that point, and had not really spoken that much. So it's just kind of showing how by having exposure enough to a language, it seems like the way we study them actually is kind of flawed. We're constantly engaging the conscious brain. You need to do is once you understand something well enough, it gets ingested into you and becomes part of your subconscious operating system that allows you to use different lenses to quickly like switch and figure out how this thing is working or what this person is doing or thinking. And that's the more intuitive approach to language, which I, I like. I think I've, I've been scarred by the way languages were taught growing up in school, which is just terrible. Oh, man. It's so, so bad. Because like, okay, there's that whole proficiency matrix, I guess. It's like there's a two by two grid, just like a square with four boxes in it. And it's on the one axis, let's say the X axis, it's um, conscious, unconscious. And then the Y axis would be competent, incompetent. So for language, we always seem to train people to get them to conscious competence. You know what you're doing and you can do it. The thing is, when you are hearing my words right now, if you have to sit down and think what every word I'm saying means, and you have to figure out the grammar of what I'm saying, then that means you're consciously processing what I'm saying, and you're going to miss most of the meaning. You're not going to keep up, especially at the speed I'm speaking right now. Yeah. But that's why you have to get to unconscious competency. You're just so proficient that you don't have to think about it anymore. And that is the reason why studying languages is so broken most of the time is because we do the conscious route and nothing else. When really, honestly, it seems like, okay, I was making this point yesterday to another friend that if you were to study languages you would probably have to just do a lot of like memorization and like figuring out the grammar and doing like written tests and stuff like that. Just conscious engagements. To another friend you were, you were talking about this? Yes. And yeah, I have more than one friend, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so my argument is that like, 
even at that point, like I met tons of Chinese people, very, very good at, at English on the books, but they couldn't pronounce anything. They were too shy to speak and they couldn't keep up with normal conversation because they had not internalized it. Because the way they learn the language is similar to us, but a lot more strict, is that they just like wrote memorization. They just like write it again, write it again, write it again. So it's not fun and it's not even practical because for them to get to a spoken level that is like a native speaker, even close to just conversational, according to this theory, you need enough exposure for your subconscious to kind of pick up the natural flow and the natural phrasings and how things work. You don't have to think enough about it. So my argument was that if you were to study that way, you would still have to go out and basically have a bunch of talking and a bunch of media to ingest and communicate and just keep practicing that, that it might actually be further ahead to just study some really basic grammar, like some very common nouns, then just start speaking to native speakers and watching the media without your own native translation subtitles, because that actually is interesting enough that it, it actually undercuts the benefits you get. And if you were just to do that, instead of going to classes, you would probably get further ahead with the language. Yeah. 10 years of studying French, which is mandatory in Canada. No, no, no. I don't count that. I do not count that at all because it's always like the same verbs. It's always like I have. Yeah, I didn't even finish my point. I did extended French and I don't remember any of it. I, I did extended French in grade seven and eight. Half of my classes were just pure French. But now when I try to speak French, I, just, I will speak Mandarin. I'll just mix it in because it's my more proficient one. Yeah. Uh, Ten years of studying French in school, which is mandatory. All I remember is the concept of conjugating verbs. I don't even know how to do them. But I just, it seems like that's all we ever did was just conjugate verbs all the time. Yeah, exactly. They, they gave us the most dry, most boring approach. I remember in university, I took a French, a couple French classes, I think. And I remember thinking that it was amazing that it took that long. Because again, we studied all through grade one to grade, I think, 10, we had to study up to. And yeah, they never really taught you anything that fu that functional because in that university class, they taught us the various ways to form a, s a sentence to make it a question and the very, very useful I want or I can. Actually, th that was another thing I was going to point out is like Tim Ferriss has this nice hack for languages. So you can avoid a lot of that conjugation in most, uh, at least Latin based languages. I don't know about a bunch of the other ones. But if you just say like, I want and then unconjugated verb, then you don't have to learn the conjugation of the verb. You can just say, I want, I will, I must, I need. And all you have to do is remember those. And then you don't have to conjugate the verb that follows. Cause like, I want to go to go in English is unconjugated. So let's say like je veux aller in French, then I don't have to say aller in any conjugated form. I just have to say je veux, I want aller and replace aller with pretty much any other verb in the sentence still works. Yeah. There's gotta be a, a lot of hacks around this then. There are some, but like that alone will set you super far ahead. Cause then you just need to remember the unconjugated forms of the verbs. Comprehension will be a little lagged behind, but at least you'll be understood. And that's the whole point of language. And with understanding, you can start forming relationships and have friends and make it actually rewarding to continue to advance in the language as opposed to just getting tests. We're way off topic now. <laughs> like language is meant to serve us, yeah. not us serve language. We're not here just to preserve the Queen's English and have like the proper conjugated French verbs and, and all the rest of it. It's kind of like my same argument for like the economy or GDP. Are we here to serve those things if it ends up being misery for everyone? Or are we here to use that? It was originally supposed to be a measure of how to get to a better place and make people happier and prosperous. But it seems like it's kind of lost that. And I think the way 
way we teach language, like you said, that kind of way. Yes. We serve the language in, in preserving its properness versus like making it useful. And that kind of relates back to the emotional intelligence piece is that learning emotion concepts is not. So you memorize the various micro expressions because that's the way reality is. It's more of like learning things to become more useful and uh, effective in your navigating of social contexts or conflicts or other things. Yeah. Think now is a good time to bring up the two-part theory of emotion. Are you familiar with this? Remind me. Maybe I am. I don't, I don't recall it right now. I'm fairly certain we talked about it. You might not know it by this name, but the two-factor, sorry, two-factor theory of emotion is the actual title. It's the belief that basically we have physiological responses to a stimulus, and then based on the stimulus and the context and our personality and all these past events we've been through, then take that feeling, that physiological response, like elevated heart rates, uh, sweaty palms, shaking. Based on this context, this means this. So like, if you feel those particular forms of arousal, we don't actually have that many. You feel a little bit wobbly, sweating palms, and your heart is racing. That could be excitement. That could be being turned on. That could be scared. That could be angry. It all just depends on what meaning we apply to it. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny how malleable these things can be. I think it was for performers. If you perform enough and then you have the pressure of performance, you actually end up getting better. But if you've under practiced, sorry, if you practice enough, if you've under practiced then and you have that pressure applied, you actually do worse. So the gap widens between the prepared and the unprepared. And so they'll both feel similarly about to walk on stage, but the prepared person will interpret it as I'm on, I'm ready, I'm good to go. I'm excited. Yes. And then the unprepared person, what are they going to think? I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I can't do this. Oh my God. Same feelings in the body, different concepts and interpretations, therefore different realities. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. I, I like that. And, and that's the split between emotion and affect, actually. So the affect is more of the feelings in the body, like uh, heart racing, sweating palms, flushed skin. That's all in the realm of affect. And the emotion concept of nervous, excited, whatever else is the interpretation of the affect. Yeah. Oh, you are. You are right. So just, I'm just to be a doubting Thomas, I <laughs> looked it up. What did you think affect was? I couldn't remember exactly the difference. And so like you saying that I was like, huh, but this is actually affect versus emotion from weirdly. There's a Wikipedia for the book we're talking about. I just happened to. Yeah, that, it's in the book we're talking about. Uh, okay, here. Affect is your basic sense of feeling ranging from unpleasant to pleasant called valence and from idle to activated called arousal. Emotion is much more complex mental construct. So yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, another word for affect, I guess, would be feelings. There might be a distinction between those two even. And so we're parsing apart the various concepts for the purpose of getting a more nuanced understanding of reality here. Because how often in everyday life do you hear conversations about the distinction between the heart racing and <laughs> and what you know it means in terms of excitement or arousal or whatever else you want to put on and nervousness? Uh, anger can have an elevated heart rate. So it's not that one cluster of feelings means this and another cluster of feelings is like you add these ingredients together and there you are, you have your emotion. It's not nearly as clear as that. Nope. It still needs somebody to interpret it. And that again, yes, relates back to their experiences. And, and that's an effective coping strategy too, to get a little practical is that like, if you do have a performance and you, you actually tune in to the feelings in your body and you're like, okay, I'm noticing that right now. I'm noticing this. Okay. And I'm having the thought that I'm nervous, but you know what? I'm going to tell myself I'm excited. And so I'm just going to 
kind of switch the concept there on yourself, doing it consciously. So even if you are a little under practice, you can kind of optimize your your chances having it go well. I don't buy that though. Because it's a subconscious interpretation. Even if we do that, we're not stupid. We we are aware that we're lying to ourselves. At least we feel we're lying to ourselves. This does operate unconsciously. But what I'm saying is actually trying to do it consciously and noticing. Like training yourself over time? Training yourself, yeah. I understand what you're saying, but I think that we're much more complex than that. That It's like believing in God, for instance, like the whole Pascal's wager. If you believe in God and he exists and you go to heaven, if you don't believe in God and he, or he exists and you go to hell, if he doesn't exist, then none of it matters at all. So really, you're not losing anything. So you should believe in God. Well, for one, that's, that's a very Christian perspective on things. But two, you can't convince yourself to believe something you, you inherently do not. You just can't. So even if you tell yourself constantly, like, yeah, yeah, I do. I do believe this. It's like having fallen out of love with your partner. Like you can tell yourself all the time that like you do love them. You really do. But it's like maybe you actually don't and you don't actually feel it and you know you're lying to yourself. So unless your your point is that by reframing it continually over time that you train yourself to interpret it as I'm actually excited. I don't know if that's going to have any real effect. Well, it is a reframing exercise, which would have to happen over time. And it's different than a positive affirmation, which doesn't work. Like, I'm happy. And then you make yourself happy by telling yourself you're happy. It sounds like a positive affirmation to me, though. How is it different? It does sound like a positive affirmation. I'm trying to think about how it's different. Hmm. <laughs> So you've you've shot the arrow and now you're painting the target. <laughs> I'm trying to paint the picture here. I don't think it is, honestly, because the, the whole backfiring of affirmations is that when you say, I am happy, you immediately come up with a bunch of thoughts in the back of your head being like, well, this went wrong and this went wrong and that and this defying that because your brain is constantly kind of test whether that's true or not. Yeah. And if you say, I'm excited. And that's exactly why they don't work. Yeah. Yeah, but then if you say, exactly. So then if you say, I'm excited when you actually feel nervous, you're going to think of all the times when you didn't practice enough and you should have practiced and how all the, you keep making mistakes. So I think it'll just backfire. It could very much backfire if you're using it in an affirmation way. And an affirmation way, in my definition, would be stating the opposite with utter confidence and conviction. So you're going from one rigid state to another rigid state. But what I'm suggesting here with reframing is not like a, a rigid affirmation of, I'm excited. <laughs> it's more of like, like, oh, I'm noticing the heart racing. I'm noticing the sweaty palms. I'm feeling nervous. Uh, I'm having the feeling that I'm nervous. Maybe this could mean excitement as well. It's kind of like um, posing the question to yourself. You're kind of opening it up a little bit. You're saying to yourself, this could be another possibility. Maybe I'm, in, I'm not interpreting this correctly, but it's possible that it could be this other thing as well. It was really nice that you pointed out how is this different than an affirmation. And at first I was stuck. But in thinking about it for a moment, an affirmation is, is just the opposite rigid thing. And it's a problem too. In creating psychological flexibility, which is something you do in therapy, you, you don't just tell the person rigidly, you'll be okay. <laughs> you, you have to kind of create a crack or openness to alternatives. Right. And so the posing of the question to yourself of, I'm feeling nervous and not an or, or a but, it's an and statement. So it's an openness. And it says like, well, this could also mean excitement. Uh, and then you're kind of entertaining the possibility of alternative realities. And therefore, when you're doing it with uh, maybe yes, maybe no openness, it doesn't cause that rigidity backfire that you would get with, I'm happy. And then your mind's like, no, you're not. You're stupid. <laughs> you didn't practice. And <laughs> Yeah. And by golly, people like me. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about chiplessness? It's not a very important thing, but when you first 
what my interpretation, because I forgot about that from the book, what I thought you were proposing when you first said it. <laughs> Do you have anything else to say first? No. No? Okay. Then, <laughs> like, what I originally, you said, let's talk about chiplessness. And I was like, chiplessness. And I started thinking about, this is similar, actually, in a similar vein, about different concepts that we hold in our minds and how some concepts can be so strong that they end up having influence when they shouldn't. So, for instance, I was thinking of, my sister used to make when we, sometimes she wouldn't have chocolate chips in the house. So she wanted to make chocolate chip cookies. So she would use the recipe, but without chips. So she would call them chipless chocolate chip cookies. So <laughs> like that is so ridiculous, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like a chocolate chip cookie with no chips, like a chipless, chocolate yeah. chipless chocolate chip cookie. And just say it's, it's a cookie. It's just a cookie then. Yeah. She would call it that because like she thought she was making like in the concept again of chocolate chip cookies was so strong and so like monolithic in a way, just huge. She kept calling them that. So they're just cookies. But I was just like, it's silly because like we don't call like normal milk chocolate free chocolate milk. <laughs> <laughs> because one of them, the concept is much stronger. Just like standard milk is the default. Whereas in this case, chocolate chip cookie was considered the default. The default, yeah. So when I said let's talk about chiplessness. Default. Oh, wait, you correcting my pronunciation again? Trying to? I don't know. Default. I don't know. I have a different a default. <laughs> different emphasis. When I said we should talk about chiplessness, you're like chocolate chip cookies without chocolate chips. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first thing that came to mind for whatever reason. Uh, maybe because I was here. Yes. At my parents' place again. Temporarily. Temporarily. And you didn't go to Thailand, which we talked about in the last episode. You're going to Thailand, so uh, that's not happening. No, well... I still wouldn't have gone to Thailand. I was going to go at the end of the month, but the, the cases are going up a lot. The logistics of getting there was like you had to pay for everything up front, including your housing, your flights, your insurance. Oh shit, I have to apply to reimburse my insurance. But they, then you could say, can I come? Look, I'm prepared. Can I come? And then they'd say yes or no. And if they say no, like you're probably going to be out a good amount of money. And since the cases are going up, I figured, you know what? Maybe I'll check out the East Coast of Canada. So that's, that's the current plan. The new plan is East Coast, rural East Coast cottage living rural i mean maybe is rural farming what is rural specifically non-urban <laughs> yeah i guess yeah just the countryside i guess i always thought of it as like farm but more like woodland areas i guess cottages and stuff if i can figure that out rural oh it's countryside yeah it's my conceptual granularity is not so good in this context yes you're just thinking of me having a bucolic life <laughs> that word came up in relation to bucolic. <laughs> it means relating to the pleasant aspects of the countryside and country life. <laughs> Ooh, perhaps a, a pastoral rustic lifestyle. Yeah. In an agricultural. Okay. Arcadian <laughs> uh, town with agrarian. I'm looking at the same synonyms that you're looking at. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We're kind of spiraling off. This is us. If we were just speaking on the phone, we'd be doing stupid wordplay things like this. It's talking for the sake of talking. Okay. We got to go now. As we've said, yeah, I think we should wrap it up. So basically, chiplessness is supposed to exemplify how emotions are constructed and you can actually make up emotions as you go. It's just basically a collection of meaning that we have imposed onto a certain physiological state. My takeaway is have some fun and create your own emotion concepts and think of things in your everyday life where there is like a, a feeling that hasn't really had a concept applied to it and then just put your own concept on it. There you are. You've made up your own concept and if it catches on and we all can agree with it, it's expanded the, the English language kind of like Shakespeare was doing in a, in a sense is he's, he's creating language. It's really the opposite of this 
proper preservation, learn French the way they taught us in school way. And it's more of a playful kind of a creative uh, way of looking at these things. Go out there and piss off grammar marms and make sure you go on to Urban Dictionary with your new definitions and load them up there so that we can find them and figure out what the hell you're talking about. And maybe they'll actually make it into the dictionary because every year there's new words going into the dictionary. So that's how language works. Yeah, yeah. People, well, that's actually the final note is that the dictionary people think is prescriptive. They think it's for telling people what to do, but it's actually trying to keep up with the language and just describing what's happening. So so yeah, it's not an authority. It's literally just trying to be like, this is what we've been using it as, I guess. This is how it's been used. It's changing, but uh, so I guess the definition's changing too. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, dictionaries are documenting, not authorities. There we go. Yes, exactly. All right, and that's the takeaway of this. <laughs> that's the takeaway. <laughs> that's the takeaway. Dictionaries are, are just <laughs> chronicling what's happening. Yeah. All right, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we hope to see you next time. And again, uh, let us know... If you know anybody that wants to have a contact episode with us, we can totally have them on and we'll go from there. All right. Uh, you can find our email in the show notes. And uh, as always, thanks for tuning in. All right. Take care. I only knew of it the other way. So that's that. That is how things are because Steve deems it so.